Welcome back to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and physics students from the Roaring Fork Valley. The interns spend several weeks working at the center during the summer and get to talk one-on-one -on -one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Emily Taylor and I'm hosting today's program, which is being recorded at the Aspen Center for Physics. Imogen Kistner is a rising senior at Dawson School in Lafayette, Colorado. She will interview Glennis Farrar, a professor of physics at New York University. Glennis is a theoretical particle physicist who also studies astrophysics and cosmology. Hello and welcome to Radio Physics. Imogen, take it away. All right, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to meet you, Glennis. It's absolutely wonderful to meet you. I'm excited for this, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about like yourself and your career and why you decided to go into what you're doing? Um, well, that's a big topic. <laughs> um, well, I guess it's worth commenting that I was an Army brat and that was an only child and moved all around, had excellent teachers, um, but sort of didn't have really a social framework the way people would, I think, today. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess in a way, in, in retrospect, maybe that insulated me from some of the difficulties that, that a woman might have had. Because I guess I didn't ex particularly expect to be integrated in the in the amongst the students and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I just sort of charged ahead, not realizing there were <laughs> real impediments. I mean, there were funny things like my freshman physics advisor rec advised that I not do physics because it wasn't suitable for women, and uh, so I did a double major in comp lit and physics to satisfy him, <laughs> you know, things, crazy things like that, which in retrospect are so totally outrageous, <laughs> but I was a little bit oblivious, which was lucky, I would say. Yeah. I guess later, you know, you started to be aware of it, mm -hmm. um, and I think things have changed so much, that's been wonderful, because now when there's a, a real sort of macroscopic fraction of people who are women, it really changes the atmosphere, mm -hmm. it's, quite, it's quite nice, and it's... Um, and it's fun to see as an older woman, now I'm in my 70s, and I see these younger women giving talks with just the same confidence as any of the guys. It's, it's terrific. There's, there, I think there was a long period, sort of in my middle years, let's say, where women were much, I mean, they were visibly more tentative. Uh, men would try to take them down by, you know, making sort of snide remarks during their seminars and things. Um, and now you just don't see that at all. So it's really, it's wonderful that the field has evolved in that respect. I think it's good for everybody, because certainly there were, I'm sure there were men who felt that kind of negative, very uh, competitive, jockeying kind of environment that used to exist. It was bad for everybody, really. Yeah. But it's, it's physics is so fantastic that that, you know, is what yeah. makes it up. Did you always know you wanted to be a physicist? I somehow made up my mind when some, somebody asked me, I think I remember in about third grade, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I just read a wonderful book by Gamow called One, Two, Three, Infinity. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it. We'll definitely check uh, <laughs> I ought to read it again myself, but I bet it's lasted really well. And I was so inspired, I said, oh, I want to be a physicist. And this, this people said, oh, wow, that's amazing. And I guess that reaction, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of <laughs> propelled me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but I'm so I have absolutely no regrets. It's yeah. been such a wonderful field, and and over my over the years, when I first started doing particle physics after I got my PhD, 
Um, it was this heyday of the discovery of the quark model and discovery that you know protons and neutrons and that kind of thing have constituent and and making sense of it and, and that was just amazing. Um, and then I sort of as as and then there were some interesting new ideas like supersymmetry that I got involved with and, and things. Um, but somehow as time went on, I found the the so a lot of people keep doing. So beyond the standard model physics, looking for new things to look for and mm -hmm. trying to explain dark matter. Um, but the particle physics side to, started to me to feel like it was just kind of concocting new things without, you know, the people call it model building, but somehow it seemed untethered to the most compelling models uh, wound up being falsified pretty much by experiment and, and in, their, in their simple form. Um, Anyway, so then I kind of drifted, and then many physi particle physics questions can be addressed by cosmology. Things like, what was the origin, to me, one of, the, I have about three questions, any of which I answered in my life, I would be totally thrilled. One of them is the origin of the matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe, which is, of course, utterly essential for life, because if there have been equal amounts of particles and any particles after the Big Bang, which everyone assumes there must have been, because otherwise that, that's also kind of unimaginable, a theory that didn't have that property. But in any event, the, they would just have annihilated and the universe would have been filled with, with uh, photons and no, no matter and we couldn't have planets and stars and whatnot. So what caused that little bit of an asymmetry? It's one part in 10 billion asymmetry and the amount of quarks and antiquarks and that little asymmetry was perfect for, um, anyway, so that's a problem. And that problem, thinking about that problem, naturally you think about cosmology and things, and so I started thinking about, you know, more origin of the universe, and and anyway, then, then I got interested somehow in ultra-energy cosmic rays, these mm -hmm. are particles whose energies are like a hundred million times greater than the energy of the particles in the LHC, mm -hmm. just made by nature somehow. Yeah. And you know how that could happen it was, was remarkable. I still am working on that. It's still not understood. Mm -hmm. um, Do you want to tell our audience what the LHC is? Oh, thank you. Uh, the Large Hadron Collider, this <laughs> Im very important and uh, central part of particle physics experiment that's at CERN in Geneva, and this Centre Européen pour la Recherche Nucléaire is what the CERN stands for. And it's where people are doing experiments and where they found the Higgs particle and so on. Thank you, Emily, for <laughs> asking. In any event, the energies of these particles, which are just atomic nuclei as far as we know, is just f phenomenal and they, it must be that they get accelerated in, in uh, sort of natural systems like, well, there are many, debates about what, what they might be. Maybe their a recent idea is that the merger of two stars might be able to uh, generate magnetic fields strong enough that they could be accelerated. But anyway, so that's a very interesting, I, I like to do both the theoretical side, but also um, I guess what I would say is a more practical side of mm -hmm. trying to interpret observations and propose 
new measurements that might give you insight on something. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, uh, trying to think of strategies for figuring out what the sources are of these ultra-energy cosmic rays yeah. um, has been something I've been involved with. And then because those get deflected by the magnetic field around in our galaxy, if there is one, I got to working on that and realized that the existing models were really poorly constrained and inadequate and I could figure out how we could do better and with a graduate student we started studying that and so now that's that sort of been for, for 12 years the dominant model of the galaxy's magnetic field and now we're with somebody else we're, we're improving that and so, so it's sort of one thing leads to another and I like to keep going on a practical side and, and on a more theoretical side. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> You've mentioned a lot of very impressive stuff. Is there like one thing that stands out to you as your highest achievement in your entire career? Maybe the thing I'm most proud of and would be my highest achievement is I was very young then. I was just uh, had just finished graduate school and I spent two years as a postdoc at the Institute for Advanced Study. And my advisor had told me when I was a, in a class, there had been a, a class, he commented that a big mystery at the time was why the uh, proton, when it's hit by an electron and it recoils, the particular way it, that process depends on the amount of, of energy that's transferred from one to another. And the way it depended was very anomalous and surprising. Mm -hmm. So he had mentioned that. So I was thinking about that. And I realized that, in fact, you could see that the fact that there were three quarks in a proton, the idea that there were three quarks in a proton, it was really very new then. But I realized that the fact that there were three instead of two or four exactly explained this behavior and a whole lot of other stuff. Um, and, that, and that insight is still, to me, the most exciting thing because before that, people really thought, I would say the preponderance of of people's view was that the quarks were just mathematical objects. Mm -hmm. um, that your dad, your granddad, mm -hmm. <laughs> worked with Murray Gilman in that period, and the, uh, the it was a lot of work establishing QCD and, and things mm -hmm. like that. But prior to that work, um, there was a, a view that they were just sort of algebraic constructs, but didn't really exist. Yeah. But this particular experimental result could only be explained if they actually existed. Mm -hmm. So that, I was very proud of that. Uh, yeah, did you get any like backlash from anyone for being a, a woman at the time? And well, it was very interesting. There, there was something that's unfortunately really still, yeah, still very pervasive in physics. Maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, but a fact that was is very, I think, makes life as a physicist uh, more difficult than I wish was that when you have an idea, if it's not an already established idea, a very large fraction of people will sort of dump on you and say, you know, one thing or another is wrong with the idea. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it only amounts to sort of, well, somebody else would have figured it out if that were right. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, when you think about it, is kind of personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I still see that, you know. Uh, I mean, now I'm kind of thick-skinned about it. Um, but it's a knee-jerk reaction. I think if I were criticizing the field, that would be my one, my one criticism. Of course, it's true, terribly important to critically examine ideas mm -hmm. and not just say, oh, that's, that's a wonderful idea, just to be nice to somebody. That wouldn't be good either. But anyway, what was so fascinating is the two really great, or I would say three really great 
physicist that I shared the idea with mm-hmm. um, immediately reacted that it was important and deep. Mm-hmm. And almost all the rest had this other reaction. I never, I didn't write it up, for, but this is another thing that is sort of maybe telling. I had the idea, but when I would talk about it to people, I was at the Institute, everybody had the same reaction of, oh, you know, if, if it was right, somebody else would have been done it. And so I didn't write it up. And then I went and I was talking about it. I, I passed through Slack, Stanford um, Linear Accelerator Center, on my way to, to take a postdoc at Caltech. And... Um, was telling other people about it, and one guy said, oh, that's really interesting, let's write it up together. And so, in fact, it's a joint paper, mm-hmm. and even though it was my idea. Interesting. Um, which, you know, in retrospect, I, I think he should have said, that's a great idea, you should write it up. Mm-hmm. If you need, you know, advice about it, tell me, and I'll, I'll be happy to help you, but that yeah. wasn't his, his style. Yeah, do you have any advice to anyone who might be going through, like, a similar experience of somebody, you know, writing up work with them um, instead of letting them do their own thing? Oh, wow, that's a good question. I I don't think I've ever been asked that question (laughs) or given thought to it, but it's an important one. Um, It's a very delicate situation because Mm -hmm. as the sort of more junior person, you feel, you know, you don't feel like you're, you don't feel empowered. um, Maybe the advice, and so uh, my thesis advisor was, and a excellent scientist, but I, I was very not, it wouldn't give me much personal advice. And for example, when I wanted to look for jobs, it was a time to be looking for jobs. I really wanted to go to Slack. But he says, oh, you have plenty of time. Uh, there's no, you know, wait until you finish your, your thesis up and then in, in January we'll, we'll. And so by then it, they'd already filled all the positions and I asked him about it and he says, oh, well, you couldn't possibly go there because your husband's working in New York. And, you know, there are all these sort of mental assumptions in, uh, which probably exist still to some of them. So I guess I would say find somebody, even if it's not your advisor, who will be supportive and is knowledgeable and can kind of be your mentor. And I think I um, really suffered from not and it just sort of never occurred to me that I should be proactive and go out and, like, interview people. You know, I want to decide if you're going to be a good mentor <laughs> or something <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little silly, but I do think that one can take action, and I didn't understand to do that mm-hmm. um, and got advice about that kind of thing. Because it's a hard call, uh, and it really does help to bounce things off people with more experience. Mm-hmm. And one shouldn't assume that the person who's sort of officially your mentor is actually somebody, or, you know, who's officially like the, my freshman advisor who said women shouldn't be in physics, or my PhD advisor who has made these assumptions. Um, so you can't assume that the person that would be your obvious best source is actually, and so in that respect, asking a, a variety of people yeah, is absolutely. helpful. Kind of in line with that, um, is there a time in your career that you had to be especially resilient? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, may, I guess I feel maybe all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, partly because of this aspect of independent of, of people, but just, oh, actually, now that you mentioned it, I've always felt like one of the key 
attributes for any physicist or mm -hmm. probably also astrophysicist or astronomer, independent of gender, is resilience. Because the number of times I get an idea and I think, oh, wow, this is a fantastic idea. Finally, I'm going to be able to explain this thing. And so I'll work like a fiend for, for the, a weekend or something and abandon my family and, so, you know, re and, and then see that it doesn't work. <laughs> so <laughs> if you... It's great to have the joy of the experience that maybe you're about to figure yeah. this thing out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say people shouldn't, you know, take the pleasure, uh, but you have to be resilient about uh, the frequency with which they don't. It's the, the chances of actually solving one of these major problems mm -hmm. are so small. Yeah. Uh, but the process is fun. Yeah. Uh, earlier you mentioned um, supersymmetry. Uh -huh. uh, can you go into a little bit? of what you're doing with that and what like, you Well, I've, I've by now pretty much abandoned it because yeah. the idea was that for every particle we know, there's another particle that's its partner in a certain sense, which has a different spin. A spin is a property of elementary particles, and they importantly mostly fall into two categories. One was so-called spin zero, and, and then the other in certain units, spin a half. And th so the idea was that there were a whole family of unseen particles, and this had all sorts of nice uh, theoretical properties, and it seemed to explain various problems. And the, the problem of dark matter, it seemed like it gave a very natural explanation by one of these extra part unseen particles and so on. But the reason I, I kind of dropped interest in it is that the, the natural mass values that it would need to have to explain dark matter turned out to be excluded by the LHC by direct experiment. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, even someone here at the center, I had a vigorous argument with her because she, she s said, oh, well, these other, uh, you, can, you can create models where, you, where it works. And she said, oh, they can be natural. You just have to have a degeneracy of this. And I said, yeah, fine. You know, people will invent these models, and, and that's fine. And the fact that I'm not personally that, uh, let's say, to me, they're not obviously compelling, but they might be the right thing. You never tell. <laughs> anyway, so it was more that it, there was a period when the natural parameters would have explained a whole lot of things and this, and then I thought it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. So since then, I've been looking for other explanations of dark matter, and something I've been excited about for the last few years is the possibility that it's actually a state of six quarks bound together in a way that's extremely elusive to detect. and it's a very fun problem because it um, involves sort of all physics that in principle we know, but parts of physics that are really hard to calculate, like the masses of hadrons made of, you know, these are the particles made of quarks. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very, it's very, it's a, in a way it's a stretch because people's natural reaction is, well, if there was another particle made of quarks, how can we possibly not have seen it? Yeah. But I looked into it, and in fact, we wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> but it's been a, a very much of an uphill battle because, like, getting it published even, the referees say, oh, surely this is not possible. And it, I mean, that's more or less their reaction. <laughs> and so that's been frustrating. But I work on other things, too, so I keep my sanity. Um, 
but yeah. anyway, so with uh, with dark matter, can you kind of explain to us like why we think it exists or oh, like what is pleasure. it from with pleasure? Yeah. <laughs> so really, it's um, astrophysics and cosmology, which sort of teach us there's something out there we definitely don't understand, uh, and the basic point is that we can see objects, we know Newton's laws and the generalization by Einstein, um, and that enables us to tell from the way systems are moving, like in a galaxy, the way the stars are moving in the galaxy. You can tell how strong the force is that's holding them together. Um, and it just, you can tell from their motions, and this is true in many, many systems. Um, it's really universal that there's roughly five times more mass in the stuff we that's not made out of ordinary matter. And the most interesting part, I think, is that you can show that it's not just unseen regular matter. It's not like, you know, if there were, uh, as someone put it, iron filings out there in space. Actually, that wouldn't be an example, but you can, you can think of regular forms of matter regular forms of matter that we're familiar with, like pieces of coal out there that would be dark and you could imagine if there was enough of it, we would never know it was there. But what's so amazing is that there's a moment in the universe when the nuclei formed, as the universe was really, really hot and then it was cooling, when it was too hot, neutrons and protons couldn't form nuclei. But finally, as it expanded, after it's only the universe is only three minutes old mm -hmm. at this period, and there's another wonderful book by Steven Weinberg called The First Three Minutes, mm -hmm. which if you haven't read, I strongly recommend. I'll also look at that. <laughs> it's, it's so accessible, and I imagine, even though it was written decades ago, probably still extremely accurate scientifically. But anyway, what happened was the, new t the universe was expanding, and as things expand, they cool. So it started off as some unbelievably high temperature, and after about three minutes, it had cooled to the temperature at which nuclei could start to form. This is still vastly greater than any temperature, except in, in like the center of a star today. And so as the nuclei were forming, first uh, helium, for well, deuterium and helium formed, and then they uh, formed other uh, elements like lithium and and but they didn't it didn't get very far beyond that most of the most of the nuclei we know today are formed in stars but anyhow these so-called primordial nuclei which could only be formed in the big bang uh, the relative amounts of the different nuclei is an extremely sensitive test of how much matter there was in the universe how many nucleons there were in the universe. Nucleons are sort of shorthand for neutrons and protons that form the nucleus. Um, the, the relative abundances we see today is an extremely sensitive probe of how many nucleons were there. And that way we can exclude that there was enough nucleons to explain the dark matter by being packaged in some different way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's how we know for sure that it's not just some dark version of what we know. And so that makes it a really fascinating physics problem of what that could be. And there's the, this workshop was, I would say, almost all the particle physicists, one way or another, are working on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, how to figure out what it mm -hmm. is, 
how to do observations that will uh, will limit its properties or exclude certain options and so on. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, when Glenna says this workshop, she is referring to the workshop that she is currently attending at Aspen Center for Physics. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's um, for Aspen, it's beautiful. Is there anything that you especially like about working here? I mean, is it conducive to your research? Do you enjoy speaking with other physicists? It, it's, it is. It's wonderful to have the sort of informal interactions and um, you meet a real people. I think the Aspen Center for Physics has been phenomenally uh, effective at, well, one of the things they do is to explicitly make a good uh, sort of human environment, people who, who are, you know, the kind of people you want to interact with because they're nice people yeah. <laughs> come and uh, they, they really work at making uh, programs that are scientifically interesting and the diversity of the attendance is great. Um, and it's so nice to have a, so you get to hear of, of several talks, um, always really interesting ones and then just a lot of time for informal discussion. Mm -hmm. And you meet a different set of people than you would have otherwise encountered, except at conferences where everything is so hectic. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really nice. Yeah. Um, is there something that you think a lot more people should be invested in, like the public? Is there something that you know of in your career or what you're studying that not a lot of attention is being paid to? Well, I think I think maybe a very important development, which has started, well, started maybe 50 years ago, very, very gradually, but it really started accelerating maybe 20 or 30 years ago, is, a, to me, absolutely essential interplay between particle physics and astrophysics and cosmology. So, for instance, a graduate student today, I think, would, who wanted to do particle physics would really, there. <laughs> their uh, PhD program would be really remiss without making sure they know a lot of, about astrophysical systems because you know there's limitations to what you can probe in an accelerator. For decades and decades, particle physics got to where it was. Like, I mean, that really, I would say the peak was in the 70s when so many different things were being discovered. And then over a few more decades, they discovered the WNZ bosons and the Higgs, and that completed the standard model. And it's not so clear what the opportunities are going to be for particle physics to be advanced using accelerators. You know, people are optimistic and constantly inventive about ways to do it and so on. But nature offers so many other opportunities, like these ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. They can provide you with collisions at vastly higher energies than accelerators, or um, binary neutron star mergers can elucidate uh, phenomena at really high energies, for example, or like here at this workshop, neutron stars and their properties, because they can be measured with such precision now, and, and certainly people use cosmological, like the way the universe is expanding constrains ideas about physics beyond the standard model. So I think that the integration of particle physics and astrophysics and cosmology is just a dramatic change. They're not, I mean, you can be an astronomer and study like exoplanets and not care at all about particle physics, but more or less any other part of astronomy, 
is related to dark matter, and so people, mm-hmm. astronomers, need to be open to the idea that dark matter has kind of interesting properties. It's not just an inert thing, which is the the basic model of dark matter. That's that's all you need, as far as we know. But there are a lot of puzzles that that simple picture has. There are aspects that we see in astrophysics that or cosmology that don't seem to be well explained within that framework. So exactly, you know, maybe particle physics will wind up giving to astrophysics and cosmology a much better understanding of what dark matter is than, you know, just from these gravitational interactions I mentioned. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I, I have had, like, a pleasure talking to you. This has been very nice. So it was a pleasure thank you so much for coming you. in. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you, Glennis Farrar. Professor of Physics at New York University and theoretical particle physicist. And thank you also to our high school intern, Imogen Kistner. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Radio Physics. For more information about our internship program and events at the Aspen Center for Physics, please visit our website at aspenphys.org or follow us on social at, at Aspen Physics. Thank you so much. <laughs>